If you will take your Bibles, please, this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 again. Or not again, because we're starting chapter 11 this morning. But we're in this final section of 2 Corinthians that began with chapter 10 and goes through chapter 13. And these uh, form uh, an extended defense here of the Apostles, uh, Paul's ministry, uh, particularly his, his being an Apostle. And it's important to remember that Paul did not choose this course of action in order to bolster his own ego. Paul is not trying to say, hey, you know, I'm important and I don't like the way I'm being treated. You know, this it's not his response in this way that that's typical uh, sometimes of human beings. But rather, uh, he is seeking, uh, and he's not, by the way, seeking to recover his standing with the church by just simply restoring his image among them. Although that was important, that was God's business, not his. But, nor was he pursuing a retaliation against his enemies. And again, he's leaving that to the Lord. He told us that there in the book of Romans. Uh, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Well, so what is, what's this all about? Paul's a servant of Christ. And he preferred to let the Lord deal with his opponents. But, but the bottom line here. And that he is, he wanted the church to understand his passionate desire for them to fully be devoted to Jesus Christ in knowledge, purity, and holiness. With the allowance of these false teachers in the church, that was not going to happen. He's the one who the Lord sent there to the city of Corinth to preach the gospel and they responded to the gospel and the church was formed under the leadership of the Apostle Paul. And so he is, has a vested concern that they remain a pure virgin to Christ as he states here in the text that's before us. And I, we're going to look into that because I think that is very interesting. Paul is, is in effect, as a servant of Jesus Christ, he's an under-shepherd, serving the great shepherd of the sheep. And uh, so, this part of, of the Lord's flock is in danger. And Paul is concerned for their welfare. That's his motive. Wants to glorify Jesus Christ. Let him that glories, let him glory in the Lord, as we noted. It was their welfare here that's at stake, and he's ready even to die in order that they might be presented to Christ, a pure and chaste virgin. And it is also here the goal of the Apostle Paul to uh, that's addressed here in the text before us to see that accomplished. And Paul wants here to create a powerful and emotional image to impact the church with his point. And again, it's the Holy Spirit of God who enabled Paul to write these words. So, 
Before we actually get into the text itself, there's a brief outline of these chapters here that I wish to share with you. The first is the Apostles' Defense, which is the first 13 verses of chapter 10. And that defense is, is seen in four things. His meekness is declared. I am coming to you in the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus Christ, which is totally opposite to what that uh, would be in the world. The method of his, of his defense is demonstrated then and, and not depending on worldly strategies, but using spiritual weapons empowered by God to destroy Satan's strongholds. He did not react in a worldly way or in a way which is based on human wisdom and human understanding. Then his militancy in this matter is denoted. Facing the ridicule of his critics, they said he writes like a lion when he's away, but in person he's weak as a lamb. And that was deliberate. Paul responded that he possessed both the power and authority of Christ himself and that they would soon realize that truth. He's in a war. He's a soldier fighting. That's the disposition that you and I need. We are warriors. We are to stand and defend the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sadly, the church today is more willing to compromise than to stand. I saw an, an interesting meme that, that the prophets of the Old Testament that stood and told the truth are the ones who received the rebuff and often died because they told the truth. Prophets that were willing to tickle men's ears were promoted and elevated and praised and honored. And we have too many men in the pulpits today that would rather be elevated and praised and honored than stand for the truth. So they compromise. And they're loved for it. And those who stand for the truth are rejected. So then, fourthly here, we see his, his measure designated not comparing himself to others because of his conforming to Christ. I'd rather have God's commendation. I'd rather have the Lord's approval than men's approval. And if any man glories, let him glory in the Lord. And that brings us then to the rest of that chapter in which the apostle then sets forth his desire. And that's in three things. That the church... His growth in faith would be securely established. He began the work there. He wants to see it completed. He saw them take a hold of faith. Now he wants them to grow in that faith and develop in that faith and be established in that faith. And so that the church, then secondly, that the church's establishment would then enable Paul to continue to preach the gospel to regions beyond. In other words, to have everything right in Corinth freed him to be able to set his attention on someplace else. And his desire was to reach the regions beyond. As it was, 
Paul is constantly burdened and concerned about the church there in Corinth and it's diverted his attention. Then thirdly, that the church's commendation was not what he was thinking, but the Lord's. And actually, that's verse number 18. If any man glory, let him glory in the Lord. That brings us to chapter 11, so I'm not going to go into too much right now. I'm going to preach it in in a minute. There are six main points in this chapter here that we need to consider. His concern over the church, that concern vindicated, and an approach to that concern activated, then Paul's warning to the church, which we'll be covering next week. Paul's credentials defended, and then his suffering for the church advanced. Uh, what he went through in his ministry to prom- to preach the gospel of Christ to regions beyond. That takes us then to the twelfth chapter, and in the twelfth chapter uh, we have uh, two, just two main points. Paul's being taken into the third heaven. Whether it was just a vision or whether he actually went into the third heaven, he says he he didn't know. But he describes the vision, being suddenly transported to paradise and hearing things so astounding that he cannot describe them in earthly language. Why? Why did God give him that? But what was the consequences of it? There was a divine vexation of the apostle to prevent his self-exaltation in it. I think he's giving it as an example to show here uh, how we respond to extraordinary things that God does for us. That it should not self-elevate us and uh, we should not relish in self-exaltation. But rather, Satan here uh, was allowed by the Lord to then afflict Paul with a thorn in the flesh to torment him. What was that thorn in the flesh? Some say it was uh, it was a physical issue. Some indicating perhaps it was even his eyesight. I personally think that it was a, a, a human being, a man, a person who was a constant thorn in his flesh. And it was the idea of that thorn in the flesh was to prevent him from... from uh, Pride. He begged the Lord three times. You know, numbers in Scripture have significance. We we tend to overlook them, but they do. Three times he begged the Lord to take this thorn away. But the Lord refused, and each time responding, my gracious favor is all you need. And after the three times, Paul came to this conclusion, came to this realization. When I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. You look at me as weak. You think I'm a nothing burger. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. What, what appears to you as weakness is not weakness, it's strength. Things... The things of the spiritual realm are so often so contrary to what the world thinks and expects. And then Paul uh, goes into his plans for a third trip to them. And here again, a third trip. He went into the third heaven. He begs the Lord three times. Now he's talking about a third trip. 
there in, in uh, verses 11 to 21. And in this he gives them some reminder that contrary to what his enemy said, Paul rem reminded the Corinthians that his previous miracles performed among them demonstrated that he was indeed a true apostle. Then his relationship to them, he reminds them, that he likened himself to a loving father and the Corinthian believers as, uh, as unloving children. <laughs> what am I going to do with these kids? And then his regret is expressed in verses 21-22 that he was apprehensive that he would find the church still filled with pride, gossip, division, and disorder upon his arrival. And he did not want that. That brings us to the 13th chapter, and this is very brief. He again continues this third uh, coming visit and the need for it. He felt the trip was necessary for several reasons. One, he was reminded that every truth must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. There's the third trip. <laughs> he, he, was, he warned and urged them, to examine themselves, indeed, whether they were actually saved. And there, that's a potent verse. I'm going to use that one in, even in this message. And then thirdly, he hoped to find them in a mature state needing no further discipline. That would free him to be able to seek other pursuits. And then, of course, we have the, the typical closing words in the remainder of that chapter. So now, let's return to the text before us. And this chapter opens then uh, by his pressing them to be patient with him. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. It opens with a plea. Please listen to me. And now he's, he's bragging. He's using the technique that the false teachers use in bragging about their accomplishments, about their standing, about their intellect, about their uh, abilities, about their education, about how many people support them, how many, you know, and uh, who supports them, and their name dropping. So Paul says, okay, if they're going to brag, I'm going to brag. I'm not bragging because I think bragging is a good thing to do. I'm bragging because you're willing to listen to braggarts. So I'm going to brag. And I've been bragging now. So bear with me, I'm going to brag a little more. And it's, it's interesting how he, he develops this. For, first by asking them, would you? Literally, further translation would be, I would that you would bear with me. Not, I wish. I, I don't like the term wish. <laughs> We've already considered that before. Uh, particularly in Second Peter there. Uh, the, the Lord doesn't wish anything. <laughs> and Paul here is not asking them or wishing anything either. He is he's pleading with them. But he's pleading with them kind of uh, politely. I would that you would bear with me. Or 
you might put it into the form of a question. Would you bear with me a little longer? And then he and makes it even more strongly. It's a command. Do bear with me. I like that. Would you bear with me a little longer in my, in my foolishness, this foolishness of bragging? He calls it foolishness, and it is. But they're willing to listen to, to uh, braggarts. The wisdom of this world is foolish. The wisdom of the world should be considered foolishness to those who know better. But it is foolishness. And now this bragging is foolishness. And he says, do, do bear with me. But now what he's going to talk about, and, and one of the things that you need to understand here is that we're, we, we live in a culture that does not practice betrothal. A young man uh, who wants to get married finds a, a girl there, and oftentimes it's in school. Sometimes it's been a, it's been a young woman that he has grown up with even since uh, childhood. And he sees this girl and he likes her and he says, this is the girl I'm going to marry. I'm going to marry this girl. He makes the decision. And then he pursues her. And using the dating method. Scripture does not encourage dating. In fact, the Jewish method of marriage was that the father chose the bride for his son. It wasn't due to his falling in love. That's one of the biggest errors in our, in our culture is thinking that, that uh, uh, a real strong marriage is based on One's having fallen in love and, and keeping that love flame burning. That's foolishness. Marriages are established on principle. And they remain strong in our devotion to the principles. And there is a, a blessing that comes along with it and that's called love. <laughs> we fall in love. I can tell you, as a husband of a wife for over 50 years, that the love flame doesn't die when you operate by the proper principles. In fact, it grows more intense. That, sadly, is, is our problem right now, is our, our homes are being devastated. And that's Satan's plan. Satan wants to destroy the home. Every, every culture is built on the home, on families, on marriage, raising children. And it used to be in our culture that a woman who chose homemaking had the best job in the culture. Not the easiest job, but the best job. And that every other job in the, in the society was designed to promote that best job, homemaking. What happened to that? Satan said, I can't have that. The church is built on the home. 
society is built on the home. Destroy the home and you've got what Satan wants, chaos. He hates us. He comes not to make life better, but to c kill and destroy. And he's doing a good job of it. But God's letting him for a reason. And that, this is the whole point that, that, that we find here. Paul is approaching this situation and using this analogy, which uh, I believe they understood in Corinth, perhaps not to the degree that the Jews understood it, but that was the culture even in Corinth, the, the Greek uh, society of the day, is dating is a relatively new thing. So Paul begins to develop this interest for the church. I feel a divine jealousy for you. And then he gives a reason for it. Since I betrothed you to Christ. Now what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, I want you to see that uh, Paul is acknowledging here that he is a servant and, and he's not concerned for the church's devotion to him. He's concerned for their devotion to Christ. But as a servant of Christ, it's he believes God is using him to encourage their devotion. As a servant of Christ, he desired their devotion to Jesus Christ. God's a jealous God. Jealousy for human beings is more often than not sinful but not for God. What is it? Jealousy comes from the Greek word from which we get our English word zeal. Zeal. We read there in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Says so that, you know, a jealous God sounds, that sounds negative. That's not negative. He wants absolute devotion to himself. He does not want us to love him with a little of our time and a little of our resources. He wants us to give him all. He deserves it. He is God. He's the creator. I made you. I put you on earth. I watch over you. I gave you my word and my rules to govern your life. Because I am God and I know exactly what's best for you and, and what we want in life is happiness. Where can we find the fullness of joy? Where can we find the greatest happiness? Vacations. Entertainment. Ball games. Family. I mean, we've got all kinds of things that, that we lay out there we think... If I just had this, I'd be happy. If I could just go there, I would be happy. Now, God does grant us many, many things. And they do give us a sense of joy. But 
what God wants is for us to understand that if we had nothing else at all, what would make us happy, supremely happy, is God himself. And really, when he says this, where our God is a consuming fire, this is in the context of of the propensity of human beings to idolatry. We say, boy, we got over that. No, we haven't. We just don't make we just don't make images of our idols, but we certainly do keep them on the shelf. And anything we put before Jesus Christ, anything we put before God in our lives, is an idol. And God looks at it, and He is jealous with a consuming fire jealousy. We read there in Isaiah 33, verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. What? Why were they sinners? What, what is Isaiah speaking about? He's speaking about their idolatry. Their propensity to idolatry. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. And then the question, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burning? That's the jealousy of of Almighty God. This jealousy is revealed when His creatures worship and devote themselves to the work of His hands and not to the Lord Himself. We, We like... We like our luxury. We like our comfort. We like our d- diversions. We like all kinds of things. And we, we, we look to those things to provide us the happiness. So we read there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, it says, You shall not bow down to them, that, that is these false gods, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I demand purity of worship to myself alone. Psalm 78, 58. For they provoked him to anger with their high places and they moved him to jealousy with their idols. 70, Psalm 79, 5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? I think I'm reminded of the Hebrews chapter 12 or chapter 11 says that closes with the Lord our God is a consuming fire. Quoting here from these various passages. The implication here when Paul expresses jealousy it is that the false teachers were making themselves gods in the sight of these people. Paul didn't even want that position. That was that was Christ alone, but now they were influencing uh, the church there to reject the apostle Paul in favor of them, and so he he dealt with that very thing there in the first chapter, or in the first chapters there of First Corinthians when he says, "I I hear there are divisions among you, 
This ought not to be so. For one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, and another says, I am of Cephas. Indeed, some of you say, well, I'm, I'm of Christ. <laughs> Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? See, jealousy in humans is generally evil. It's sin. James chapter 3, verses 15 and 14 and 15 says, if, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, selfish ambition, notice that. I like that. Why, why do I want to do this for, my, for selfish ambition? Why, why do I have, why am I upset with my neighbor over there because he got a new car? Is it, <laughs> bitter jealousy? If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast, nor be false to the truth. Don't lie about the truth. I can quote scripture and and everything, and but I'll quote the scriptures that that uh, justify my thinking. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, James says, but is earthly, unscriptural, demonic. Are we under the control of demons today? Absolutely. Proverbs chapter six, verse thirty-four: For the for jealousy makes a man furious. And he will not spare when he takes revenge. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? Asks the writer of Proverbs. Chapter 27, verse 24. Uh, verse 4. Saul became jealous of David. Why? I mean, here's David just serving Paul, Saul, wanting to be a good soldier and leading, leading Saul's armies. And they return from the victory. And what do, we, what do you hear? We hear some popular music going on in the street corners. There is the women beating their tambourines and singing. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And Saul's walking along there and saying, wait a minute. I'm the king. What's this? He looks over to David and says, that rascal kid is getting more credit than me. And it provoked him with a sense of jealousy and he tried to kill David because of it. The interesting thing to note in in this text is that jealousy is something a man has when he suspects his wife or his betrothed bride has been unfaithful. And this is, this is what Paul is expressing here. He says, I have a divine jealousy. I'm jealous. I'm not jealous for myself. I'm jealous for the Lord because you are the bride of Jesus Christ. And I have a vested interest in you. And in fact, he's using the figure here of a friend of the bridegroom. And I'll, I'll speak to that in a second. But, but uh, why does he say that he's jealous? Because he, his betrothed 
bride of Christ is being unfaithful to another Christ. And he's, that's clear in verse number 4. 4. Notice 4. And that, that's a reason. He's giving a reason here. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, and so on. He said, I'm jealous. Not jealous for myself, but jealous for my God, whom I serve as his best friend. You think this is you see this illustrated in when uh, Joseph uh, heard that his wife was pregnant and he knew they hadn't come together. So he was minded to put her away. I'm going to end this betrothal because my wife has been unfaithful and there was jealousy and anger. A zealous anger in his heart because of her betrayal. And the Spirit and the Lord, the angel came to, to Joseph in the night and said, Don't be troubled about this. Take Mary your wife, to be your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's not her unfaithfulness. So Paul here was saying that he was jealous for God. Because the Corinthian church was showing devotion to another. And it's interesting here, and I, I'll, I'll deal with that in a minute, but uh, and here, generally it was the responsibility of the father to arrange the, the marriage. But we, we find all kinds of examples in Scripture. For example, here's Abraham. When Abraham wanted a, a wife for Isaac, how did he get it? He sent a servant into a far land to arrange a wife for his son. Isn't that interesting? Now, when Isaac wanted to seek and get a wife for, for uh, Jacob, he didn't do that. He let Jacob go himself. And what did that produce? He came back with two wives and two concubines. <laughs> and all these kids from these different women. It's interesting how you, de how you can develop that. It says, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. And that, of course, is a reference to Jesus Christ. So, Paul's using here this figure of betrothal. And uh, so, it, as I said, it was the father's uh, responsibility to then ensure that his daughter was a virgin on her wedding day. If she wasn't, he would be put to shame. So, the scriptures deal with that. I'm not going to go into it. But here we have the servant used then as, as the father of the church at Corinth, in a sense, 
And so now Paul says, I'm jealous for you and I'm, I feel a responsibility that when I bring you to Jesus Christ, you will be a chaste virgin. I want to ensure that. Now he was jealous for the church who was in danger of another Jesus. Notice that in verse Verse 4 there, for someone comes and proclaims another Jesus. It's interesting here that the Greek here, there's two words for another in the Greek. And we don't see that often in the English. One means another of the same kind and, and the other is another of a different kind. And this word for another Jesus here is another of the same kind. which is an interesting point here. We have, it's the same Jesus that's being preached, but I think the, the point here is this Jesus being preached by the false teachers is the same Jesus that Paul was preaching to the church there, but it is, it is in his mind a different Jesus of the same kind, but, but, but the problem is it's not in the same way. That if, that if the church gets involved with the Jesus that, the, uh, that these false teachers are preaching, they're going to wind up not a virgin, so to speak. He's using this, this I think is important language. If someone... And if someone comes and proclaims another, alas, another of the same kind, Jesus, than the one we pro proclaimed, and, or if you receive, and, the, and this is the problem, and with this same kind, Jesus, uh, this other Jesus, is that there would be a different spirit. This another spirit is heteros, and that means a, another of a different kind. Than, this, than the one you received, or if you accept a different heteros gospel, a different, another of a different kind gospel, from the one that you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. That's his point. You're not very discerning. You're letting things influence you that shouldn't influence you. It's not the truth that, that's Grounding you. It's your whims. And when this wrong Jesus is preached to you, you take it and you say, I'm satisfied. But it's another not the same. It puts you into a different gospel category. And why? What? Why so? Well, I'll touch on that. But it, it reminds me of uh, Galatians 1, 6 and 7 for Paul's I am astonished that you are, are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and turning to a different heteros gospel. Not that there is another, alas, uh, the same kind, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which is... So now then Paul responds to that by saying, for, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 
Or am I trying to please man? And if it were still, and if I were still trying to please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. That's Galatians 1, there at 6 through 10. So let's look at then the nature of the concern in light of Paul's desire for the church to present her as a pure, chaste virgin to Jesus Christ, loyal and faithful to him, because the church is the bride of Christ. We're told in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and give and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We're in the betrothal state. Jesus is coming to receive his bride. First, Adam was created, so he's the first man, and he was given a wife, Eve. She was brought to him, and Adam rejoiced over her and said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's taken out of man. I'm going to call her Eve. She's the mother of all living. So like Abraham, Jesus had a friend, uh, of the bride to negotiate the betrothal. Now it's not it, in this case it's not Paul. Who is it? It was John the Baptist. <laughs> Jesus came and he had a friend of the bridegroom who came to arrange this marriage. The one who has the bride, he, and he said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine, John says, is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that was Paul's attitude to, to, as well. That's John three twenty nine and 30. So in a sense, Paul is like John the Baptist declaring himself a friend of the bridegroom. And he t now he takes this image a little bit further. His concern is vindicated. He feared that Satan would deceive the Corinthian bride as he had deceived Eve. The Judaizers held another Jesus. Another of the same kind, but so it appeared. But it was a of a different spirit and a different gospel. A different kind. And so we read here that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Oh, you need Jesus, yes. But you also need circumcision. That's Acts 15.1. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. That's Acts 15.5. So then in Galatians 5, Paul says, in beginning with verse 2, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You cannot add anything to the gospel. Nothing. 
The gospel is Jesus and Jesus alone. After, after we're saved, yes, now we do have obligation to commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What's your Christ's commandments? Well, he sums them up in love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself, which is the whole law revealed on Mount Sinai. But when it comes to the gospel, it's Jesus alone and nothing else. But there, but these false teachers were saying, now you got to have Jesus and baptism. You got to have Jesus and this, and you got to have Jesus plus that, Jesus plus circumcision. Paul said, "No." I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. That's the gospel. Faith working through love. So in Galatians 6 and verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, the new birth. So he feared then, and they his fears were warranted due to their being gullible and ready to believe anything that they heard about Jesus and the gospel and the gospel another gospel would prevent them would prevent the church from being pure and holy devoted to her bridegroom so Paul reiterates that in Ephesians 5 when he clearly shows that God what God has purposed for the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such things that she might be holy and without blemish. So if the Corinthians rejected Paul for the Judaizers, then Paul's jealousy was warranted. For this reason, Paul says, I would, I could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that someone, the tempter, had tempted, some, excuse me, that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. 1 Thessalonians 3.5 This is why he charged them. And I close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Do you examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you realize this about yourselves? 
that Jesus Christ is in you unless you have failed to meet the test? Father, I thank you for the Word and I thank you for Paul. Lord, we want to be a pure virgin ready to meet the Lord when He comes. And when He comes, and we hope He comes soon, come Lord Jesus. In the meantime, through the Spirit of God, uh, through the Spirit of God and through the Word of God, keep your people. Keep us. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.